James chapter 4. I'm going to look at verses 11 through the end of the chapter. Actually, if we had time, which we don't, I don't want to miss anything. I think these all go together with the first uh, six verses of chapter 5 also. Message entitled, Arrogant Attitudes. The attitudes we have about us being in charge of our opinions, our business, and in chapter 5, our money. Father, I pray that you give us understanding of your word. Lord, as you take the mirror of your word and we reflect on our own lives on that, Lord, that we not be forgetful hearers, but obedient, allowing you to do the work in our life to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that we might be vessels that you can use for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We've already talked about the tongue in chapter 3, no man can tame it. The problem that our speech is, your tongue only does what your heart tells it to do, what it tells it to say. It says no man can tame it. And it says where does it come from? It says it's set on fire by hell. It comes to chapter 4, where do the quarrels come from? from our own lustful desires, our own worldly attitudes. That's where quarrels come from. And he really takes it a little deeper now in verse 11 with these arrogant attitudes. And he says, he just starts out and he says, do not speak against one another, brethren. For he that speaks against his brother or judges his brother, he takes it up a notch, that's what you're doing speaks against the law or judges the law. And if you're a judge of the law, you're not a doer of the law, but the judge of it. It's talking about the problem that we have of slander. That's what the Greek word is, slander. The need for my opinion to make a difference. I mean, how many millions of dollars have been made on 1-900 numbers? You want to give your opinion? Call this number. You got to pay, but you think it's worth it for them to hear, whoever, your opinion on something. Now, several people told me after the message, oh, that was tough. Yeah. I would rather just skip this one because there's probably nobody here that this is not a problem to. And I try to take this and memorize it, and all week long, the Holy Spirit's like, yeah, what about you? Yeah, Lord, it's me. It's me standing in the need of prayer. We think it's so important that people know our opinion. You know, it's like little kids when they know they're going to get a no from their mom, so they line up three or 50 friends whose moms, who they've never talked to, would all definitely say that they should go do this activity that they know their mom is not going to let them do. And they walk in there, they lay out their case, and they say, but everybody else gets to do it. And in effect, they wouldn't use these words. It said, Mom, you'd be an idiot if you didn't let me do it because look at, look at the weight of public opinion. So well, that's pretty junior high. Yeah, where do they get it from? Somebody hurts us. Somebody does something wrong. They're taking a little wrong direction. They're doing things a little bit different, how they raise their kids, the way they dress, cut their hair, whatever. We think it's so important that we get five of our friends around us and just let them know whether they hurt you or it's just something they're doing you don't like. This is what I think about that. We slander them. 
because we have this weird idea that if we get enough people on our side, we'll straighten them out. And it's not just Christian culture or the church, it's everywhere. Political correctness is that desire to let everybody know if you disagree with culture the way it is in America, you're a sinner. Because we've all decided this is moral, this is what upright, this is you're a hateful if you don't agree with what we've decided. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, arrogance, and the evil way, evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. One of the seven things that God hates, and it increases in intensity with each one, the last one is he that sows discord among brethren. Just a little bit here, a little bit there, to try to get public opinion swayed with slander. This word, kataleo, Greek word, appears only here and in 1 Peter 2.12 and 3.16, along with the related nouns, katalia and katalaos. It just means slander. It refers to mindless, thoughtless, careless, critical, derogatory speech directed against others. It might even be true, but you're taking true information in order to defame somebody else. And he's talking about Christians. Why, brethren, don't do this? Why are you slandering one another? Slander is so dangerous. In 1 Samuel 22, David sent a delegation of men to console Hanan. And uh, Hanan was the son of an Ammonite king, and the king died, and he was friends with David. So David sent a delegation to comfort them and kind of give respect. This man had lost his father. But when David's servants came to the land of the Ammonites, the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan and their lord, do not think that David is honoring your father because he has sent consolers to you. Has David not sent his servants to you in order to search the city, to spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanan listened to that wicked counsel, that slander. That was not in David's heart. He just wanted to console. See, David had, was a man after God's own heart, and he just ruled over what God gave him. He didn't have to go get more. So they took these men that were sent to be an encouragement, and they cut off half their beard, and they cut, it was a sign of disrespect, they cut their robes off just at their hips, and they sent them back. They said, you tell your king, take that. So the young men sent a message back to David what had happened. And he said, hey, you didn't do anything wrong. You did what I asked you to do. You just stay down there till your beards have grown back and I will deal with this. Well, then king of the Ammonites thought, oh, I kind of messed up. Instead of saying, sending a delegation, David, I was wrong. I listened to wicked counsel. Will you forgive me? No, he just went and got some other help. He talked to another king, said, listen, I think David's coming down here, so I need some help. And David did come down there. And 40,000 men died in battle because of that few wicked slanderers. People's lives are destroyed by slander. Now, we as a believer, when somebody slanders up, you, you've all been, been uh, probably received some slander of one kind or another in your life. We have this this other uh, 
great God in our corner. And we can just say, hey, Lord, did you hear that? And leave it. The world can't do that. We don't often do that, but that's our opportunity. In Psalm 35, there's this long and precatory prayer. And it says, Lord, you see what an enemy's doing? You know, you, you rip them top to bottom, just break their jaw, break their arms. And you say, well, that doesn't sound very Christian. No, what the psalmist is doing, he's saying, Lord, you deal with them. Because the Bible says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. We can do that. Lord, you see that? Okay, that's enough. I'm out of it now. You deal with them. Because even an enemy, God can turn to a brother if he's dealing with it. You're not going to do that with your slanderous tongue. It's what you're doing when you've been the slanders. You don't like the way things are. You're going to change it by your words. It's what you do is you step out of being submissive to the law, submissive to God's word, and you say, let me kick over for, this, for you on this one, God. I will just be the judge myself. And he says, no, no, the next verse. There's only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save or to destroy. Even if you're angry at somebody and you think by getting a lot of people on your side, you're not going to change somebody's heart. You're probably going to build a wall and help them build another wall, but you're not going to change things. That's not how it works in life. The Hatfields and McCoys, you know, we all know about that feud. Who knows why it was started, but once it goes, you got to keep going. It's just bitterness. It's destructive. It destroys. That's not God's way. It's not bitterness. It's not slander. It's not being a judge. He said, if you're a judge, then you're not obedient. And God did not create you to be a judge. He created us to be servants, not judges. Only God can make the difference. Only God can bring punishment, judgment, Only God can change a heart. In Psalm 49, it says, you can in no way ever see your brother be saved because the cost of a soul is way too much. So you might as well stop trying. Yep. The only thing you can do, the most powerful thing you can do is pray. How did Jesus say to deal with an enemy? He said, be kind to them. Pray for them. Pray that God will work in their heart because only he has the power to change your heart. And then he says, and who are you to judge your neighbor? This last song we sang, I love that song. And we sang it last week, and so I didn't even hope that, Dave, that Jason would use it again, but he did because he loves me. See, when we see God for who he is, it's very easy to stay in our place, very easy. And the children of Israel gathered up around Mount Sinai, and God came down and he spoke the law to them. God did from heaven. And their response was, uh, Moses, tell God don't talk to us anymore because he'll kill us. Why? Because the awesome physical presence of a holy God, no man can stand. Last week we talked about it, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah finds himself in the throne room of God, and his first thought from his face on the ground was, I'm a man about to be ripped apart. 
And so God had to say, Moses, I want you to come up in the mountain. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to write my laws on stone. I'm going to give it to you. And when Moses got all done with that, he made what Spurgeon calls the greatest request that a human could ever make. He said, God, show me your glory. I think Moses, looking at the law, said, who can can keep up with this? Who can ever be accepted by God? That's the point of the law. You can never be accepted by God by keeping the law because you will fail. So Moses said, God, show me your glory. That's where we're going to find the strength and the power for a straight path is in the word of God and in prayer, we begin to get a glimpse of the glory of our great God. And Spurgeon said, surely when Moses realized what he had asked for, his knees smote together. And God said to Moses, no man can see my face. It would kill you. But I'll tell you what I'm going to do, Moses. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to put my hand over the rock. I'm going to pass by with my back. And when he passed by, he just quoted the goodness of God, the greatness of God. And when Moses came down off the mountain, his face shone. You know what that caused in the children of Israel? Every time he went into the tabernacle and came out, his face was shown. He had to put a veil over his face because they were afraid to come close to him. That's the effect of holiness on human beings. If we get a glimpse of the greatness and the holiness of God, we're not going to have so much trouble judging our neighbor, slandering somebody else, because we're going to have, like my dad used to say, our eyes on our own row of corn. Kids grow up, and I think it's good that they grow up. The Bible says brothers are born for adversity. If you have sons, especially, you know that. And I think girls too. I might talk to my son, Ben, the other day, and he said that uh, Charlie and and Reese, Reese is a little older than Charlie, and, and she can handle herself. And they're really close. They love one another. They spend a lot of time together, but they got in a fist fight at the park. And uh, so Grandpa's question was, who won? Well, Ben would ask him, start another fight. They still hadn't settled who won. We just are that way. We want our way. We want our way. And kids grow up and they kind of knock the rough edges off. And if they grow up in a good home, they find out because God, because mom and dad are modeling God to them. It's like, hey, you don't have to be right. God is right. You don't have to be right all the time. A friend of mine, I used to, occasionally I'd ride in a car with him. And I finally decided to ride anywhere in the car with this guy. It was like tempting God. Because he had an art running argument and instruction with everybody else on the road. Have you seen people like that? They're always instructing because they know the way, so they're just taking their finger at you, instructing you, and yelling. And 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 in my walk that I walk during the summer, as I go and buy Taco Bell a year or so ago, I like to keep traffic. I don't want to be the reason traffic backs up. You know, you're crossing a driveway and then five cars, but you're making everybody mad. I'm just keep it flowing. So if I see, I'm an old cowboy, so if I see there's, there's somebody going to turn in, then, you know, you're used to directing cows. You just stop and try to get them to go one way or the other, you know, and so I just back off away. And, and a lady turned in front of me, but she felt the need, even though cars are backing up, 
behind her to roll her window down and give me instruction how pedestrians had the right of way. I'm like, and she was angry. I'm like, huh. So I laughed at her and kept walking. We don't have to instruct everybody. We're not responsible for anybody else's path. Just mine. Just mine. Somebody asked one of our fellows one long time ago, can't you control your wife? <laughs> no. Nope. We don't have to be in charge. And you are not in control. You'll never be in control. The sooner you figure that out, the more opportunity you're going to have for peace. You have any experience with unsaved construction guys in this town? Most of them are in anger management, managing yours or managing theirs. You ever ever experienced that? You want to get something done? Well, they say they're going to be there because they want your business, but then they don't show up. Why? They're working on the guy that's maddest at them, and so they go down to the city, and they just walk in fuming red anger because that's how you get the city to do stuff. You get people moving with anger. That's not the way we're supposed to operate, with slanderous words and angry attitudes. But it comes from a heart that says, listen, I should be in charge. Let me be in control. And we step into God's place, and we even judge our brothers. The Bible says, who are you to judge another? Another man's servant to his own master, he will stand or fall and stand he will, God says, because God is able to make him stand. You don't know what God is trying to do with your brother or sister over there. Yeah, but that's not the way we would do it. That's okay. As I was meditating about these things this week, I realized where the problem came from in my life came from my my dad's side of the family. You know, uh, the Martins and the Joneses are right They've been right for years. They're just right. And on the Jones side, they'll fight you for it. A lot of Scotch-Irish in there, they'll fight you for it. And some of the great stories are the stories of my dad and my Uncle Jim fighting. My, dad, my Uncle Jim was bigger, but my dad was skinnier and faster. And having a fight one day, and dad takes off running because, I don't know, he got the last of something probably and, you know, kind of put it in my uncle's face. So my uncle took off and he's going to clean dad's clock. But dad, my dad's got tired of running and just stopped and put his fist out and Uncle Jim ran into it. That's what brothers do. Why? Because we want our way. We want our way. And we're right. And as I thought about it more, I said, well, you know, actually on the other side of the family, the Berglunds and the Johnsons, they were right too. For generations, they were right. And I loved, as a little kid, going to Christmas Eve, we went to the Norski celebration, the, the Lefse and the, all that other stuff on the Swedish side, the Norwegian side. And the thing I remember being a little kid, it was so loud. You know why it was so loud? Because nobody ever waited. They just talked over the top of the other person. I began to realize, you know what, I think this isn't just my family. I think every family, every individual is born with this flesh that says, no, I'm right. I'm right. And if I could just share that with everybody, wouldn't the world get along better if I was just in charge? And when you find out you're not, what is it? The natural response is anger. God says, who are you? 
But as believers, we have this great opportunity to come into the presence of God. And when we're there, we realize that God is great and we are not. We are not. David said, I comforted myself like a baby comforts himself on his mother's bosom in the Lord. You're hurt, don't respond in anger. It's okay to weep. It's okay to weep over being hurt. Don't choose the devil's way of, I tell you what, I'm getting even. Because doesn't the Bible say someplace God helps those that help themselves? No, that's the devil's book. Our book, the Word of God says, you can trust your soul to a faithful creator in doing what is right. But look what they're doing, Lord. See, other people's sin is really the problem, is it not? My sin's not a big deal. That's why we don't deal with it. And one of the greatest illustrations of how to deal with personal sin is when 1 Samuel 14, God gave uh, instruction to Saul to go destroy Agag and his whole ilk. Destroy him. I'm done with him. But Agag went out. He wanted his own trophy room. Now, today we have trophy rooms where guys take the 30-odd big one, and they blow an elk away, and they say, look at I'm a man. <sighs> look at that on the wall, right? Well, they did one better in those days. They brought the king alive. They cut off his thumbs and his big toe so he couldn't fight anymore, couldn't ride a horse anymore. And then they let him tell the story about how that king whooped him. Big bang. They took good care of him, didn't put him in jail, took good, big care of him. There's a trophy room. Tell him how I whooped you again. So that king would have to do that. So Saul was supposed to destroy Agag and everything, not keep cattle, sheep, no spoils, destroy it all. God didn't want any of it. And Samuel shows up in God's time. Saul thought a little bit late. And Samuel says, uh, uh, didn't God send you on a mission? Well, yes, I went on a mission. Well, how come I hear cattle and sheep? Oh, well, I did one better than God asked. I saved all the best for a sacrifice. And Samuel said, to obey is better than sacrifice. Don't think you can, you know, like some churches, you know, you're going to sin, so just give them a little money, and that takes care of it. No, no, God's not looking for that. We read that in Psalm 40 today. God's not looking for an offering. He's not for a burnt offering. What he wants is a heart. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen to God is better than the fat of rams. And then here comes Agag, the king. He'd have made a great politician. The Bible says in the King James, he came mincingly and he said this, surely the bitterness of death has passed. <laughs> that old prophet grabbed Saul's sword and he said to him as he lined up on his head, as you have made women childless, I'm going to make your mother childless. And the Bible says he hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord. Why, what's that a picture of? That's the picture of how you and I ought to deal, not with other people's sin. We'd like to do that. No, deal with our sin. Psalm 119, 11, you probably have it memorized. How can a young man make his way straight? By taking heed according to the word, thy word of a hidden march that won't stop, pastor, I just can't memorize. If your life depended upon it, you could. 
And our spiritual walk depends upon us listening and submitting to the Word of God. And if you have a problem in a certain area, you confess it and then get in the Word. And the Bible says you ought to memorize it, get it in there. So every time there's that temptation, that opportunity for you to take charge again and judge or slander or get angry, you say, oh, here's the Word, and you can take the left and get off that road. You can be obedient. Who are you to judge another? We don't want to get in God's place. Another place we, we, the other way we get in God's way is we take over our life. We're sovereign over our life. We get arrogant. He says there, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a city, and we'll spend a year there, and we'll do business, and we'll make a profit. Got it all planned. I think it was J. Vernon McGee pointed out that this is a little like what Satan said when he said, I will ascend and be like the Most High. Today or tomorrow, we'll decide the time. We'll go to a certain place. We'll decide where. And we'll decide how to do business. We'll do our business. And we will make a profit, guaranteed. Surefire, can't miss. We know how to do this. And it's so wicked. Because we just leave God out of it. We don't have to check with God. We know what we do. I'm in this business. I don't have to check. And yet Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own. You may think you have this because you've been there before. God says, in all your ways, acknowledge him. Not just the big stuff that you can't handle like death or cancer. No, no, no in the little things. Little things make the difference, don't they? You miss God's opportunity because you are all fire sure that this is the way you were supposed to do it, and it didn't work out. Then you blame God. God, how come I can't ever be a success? You let me down again. God says, who's talking to me now? In all your ways, acknowledge him, and then he'll make your path straight. All your ways. Coach Detai used to have a talk with the football team when we go to Guernsey for our 10 days of heat. He said it was the strangest thing. We go to Guernsey 107 degrees for a week so we could play a championship in a blizzard. He said, I don't know. It's what we do. But the first day of practice, we would sit down after supper, and he'd give them the same speech about the little things. It's not just playing football. You got to go to class. You have to be on time. You have to do your homework. It's the little things that make all the difference. God wants to have rule of everything in your life. Why? Because he belong, you belong to him. You're his possession. But that ought to be an amazing thought to us. We're going to sing a song at the end I love too. And the thought is, I'm loved by the king. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. We are weak, but he is strong. He's our protector. Is he your shepherd? You got all these plans, and you got God in it, and then when all of a sudden something goes, 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 you say, well, God let me down. We take a wrong view of, it's the great misinterpreted sports verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Maybe that's not what God wants you to do. In the context, what the verse is saying is in want 
or in plenty, God's my provider. I'm going to keep my eyes on him and accomplish what he wants me to do with my time, with my assignment that he's given me. I can do what he assigns me. You don't go out and figure out what you like to do and say, oh, hey, there's my life verse. I can do all things. That is Satan's uh, twist on it. Just figure out what you want, and then you can do it. It's not God's plan. God's plan is that we be faithful. Psalm 37. I love that psalm. It says, dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. What does that mean? Every every opportunity you have, every challenge, every test, you choose God's way. That's just what you do. You make a determination like Daniel did. Daniel was taken from his home. He was royalty. and He was made a slave in the courts of Nebuchadnezzar. But Daniel determined in his heart ahead of time, I'm not going to defile myself. I'm going to cultivate faithfulness, even here in captivity. Cultivate faithfulness. Then it says this, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. What does that mean? It means if your delight is the Lord, he's going to change your desires to meet with his desires. You're going to be on the same page. And then I love this part. If you will do that, if you'll just delight in the Lord and say, Lord, I'm just going to trust you in this. I don't know how it's going to turn out. I'm just going to trust you. And your delight is what God is doing. It says, he will bring forth your righteousness like the sun coming up the next day. You don't have to focus on it. You know, oh, I got to try to be righteous. No, you just focus on the Lord. You make him your delight. You cultivate faithfulness. That means your part. I'm just going to be obedient. He'll bring forth your righteousness like the sun coming up the next day. We have our plans, and God has hints. If you want success as a believer, you find out what God is doing, and you get there. You submit to his will through his word, and you follow him. That way you can say, the Lord is my shepherd. He leads me. I don't say, hey, Lord, here's the will for my life. Please sign here so I can be a success. No, he leads me. He leads me. Pastor Brian Johnson up in Thermopolis came down from Thermopolis to play football at the University of Wyoming, and he's a big guy too. He'd have been good, except for God had better plans for Brian. And he blew out his knee the fourth time was just stepping out of his car. And he's like, and then he came to Christ, and now he's a pastor. He said, well, I, I... Wouldn't it have been better if he could have become a great football player and influenced many for Jesus? You can't influence anybody. We already read that, Psalm 49. You can't can't influence somebody to become a Christian. You can just live your life. You can pray for them. We are so weak by our anger or by our good-feeling vibes. You can't change somebody's direction of their heart. Only God can do that. But we recognize that. We say, Lord, he's not saying he's against profit here. Our church is full of entrepreneurs. We, we love men and women in business. We love that. That's awesome. You know why? People that are in their own business and they're believers, they, they have no qualms about saying, Lord, help me today. Bring the business today because we're in trouble, right? They lean on the Lord every day. It's not against you making a profit. But see, what happens is, If you just think you're on your own, 
and you've got to do this yourself, then when you get the money, you kind of tend to think that's yours too. When really the blessing for the business were from God, and the Bible says, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. You're a slave of Jesus. So everything you have, everything you are, belongs to him. And that's the path of joy. If you think that you're responsible to get all you can and then be a good steward, another twist of Satan, so that you can all you get and then sit on the lid and you've got to keep it and protect it from somebody else abusing it and using it, you're going to miss it. You're not in control. And the sooner you figure out that even your tithe is just a recognition, God, I want you to know I love to give this tithe because you own everything I have. I belong to you, Lord. I'm loved by the king. And it makes my heart want the same. He said, you can take that boast like, look what I do. I can get this done. I'm a shaker and I'm a mover. But the next verse says, yet you don't even know what your life's going to be like tomorrow. We're praying for the pages this week, grieving not only loss of Tom's mom, but his son. And last Sunday as we sat here, we had no idea that was going to happen. James' dad went to be with the Lord. We didn't know that. What day? We got all these plans for the future, what we're going to do when I get this and I get this done, I finish my education, I get this, I'm going to go there, and I'm going to do this. And we don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know. There's an old song that young people used to sing, I don't know about tomorrow. I just live from day to day. I don't worry about the future. Doesn't matter what's coming. You, you can be, you know, get hooked on Rush Limbaugh and be afraid about everything. You know, be complaining about everything. This, is, this country's, let me tell you a little, little secret. I've read to the end of the book, I hope you have. America's not in it. America's been blessed of God, but we're not going to be singing the national anthem for the United States in heaven. No, we're going to be singing that national anthem as worthy as the Lamb, not the Star Spangled Banner. The Bible says, the wicked will be turned into hell and all the nations that, what, forget God. That's where we're at. But even though things look shaky on a national scale, we are secure in Him. Our security is Him. So why wouldn't we go there? And that song goes on to say, I don't know about tomorrow, but what? I know who holds my hand. He knows about tomorrow. He knows what's coming. We don't have to be afraid. If he's the one leading you, if he's your shepherd, you don't even know what's coming tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Listen, you get past 40 and life just picks up speed. Maybe you were thinking in junior high, I'll never get through high school. Remember the big fear in my life, how will I ever learn how to type? And you guys know what that means, do you? We had typewriters, not keyboards. It's the same thing, basically. I'll flunk. High school must be so hard. I've been out of high school for a long time. My kids are all out of high school. It just goes fast. And the King James Psalm 90 says it like this. We spend our years as a tale that is told. So the psalmist said, so, Lord, teach me to number my days because they're so quickly 
We can't do anything about yesterday. We can do nothing about tomorrow. We can only be faithful and cultivate faithfulness, what, today. How are you making these big plans and your big ideas about tomorrow, when you, about the future, when you don't even know what tomorrow? He said, what you should be saying is, if God wills, we will live. Wow, live? That's a big thing? <laughs> God holds our breath in his hands, our very breath. He knows how many days you're going to live. We're going to live to old age, or you're going to go in an accident, or you just stop breathing. He takes you home. He knows all that. See, the, the key for us is to know him. I had a friend that used to pray. I hear some of you pray that too. He says, Lord, we just thank you for waking us up today. Yeah, that's a good prayer. We have one more day to serve the Lord. In your prayers, I hope it's, and Lord, may be sensitive to your spirit so that I don't miss anything today. We, we read about it in the psalm today, Psalm 40, verse 8. It's just write it down about me. I delight to do your will. Well, you can't do God's will if you're not listening, if you're not paying attention. A lot of his will's written down here, the commands of Christ, the word of God. But there's those other things that, how do you know? John MacArthur kind of codified it from the word of God. He said, it's God's will that you be saved. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's God's will that you be spirit-filled. Every one of you. Every one of us. What does that mean? That we're filled up with the word of God, so the word of God has the influence in our life. It's God's will that we be willing to suffer for his name's sake. I said, well, how do I figure out what school to go to, what girl to marry, you know? Well, you delight yourself in the Lord. He'll point you that direction. He changes your want to. His will. So many of us are afraid of what God might do. Well, if, if, if I just turn everything over to God, he'll just, you know, he'll make me marry an ugly girl because she's spiritual. Huh. If I just turn my life over to God, he'll, he'll make me marry some big old ugly guy because he reads his Bible a lot, and he'll make me go to India, and they got cobras, and I don't like snakes, but I know that's what God will make me do if I just go, okay, Lord, whatever. Okay, now we're seeing a little bit what you think about your Father in heaven. He's just out to punish you. The one who laid down his life for you, he gave it all that you might know him. No. The Bible says he that gave his only begotten son so that you might know him, will he withhold any good thing from you? Hmm. He says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. It's our arrogance that leads us to think that we know the best for everybody else, and so we just throw our slander out there. And we judge, we step into God's place as judge, and we decide who's worthy and who's not worthy. And it's our arrogance that says, I don't need God on this one. Let me just figure this out. And we get so angry if God begins to throw some roadblocks or some different exits. He says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. What's the boasting? I got my life plan, Lord. Just sign at the bottom. 
Verse 17, therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Listen, there's the information. What he's saying is, I told you now. I told you. We come to the word of God as a mirror, and the way that works is, this is what God's standard is. This is what God's commands are. This is what God says he desires in our life. And then we look at ourselves. If we're not a forgetful here, we go, whoa, <laughs> I'm not there yet. So what's our response? The Bible says if we confess our sin, he was faithful and just to forgive us. What does that mean? He's always consistent. He always is available to forgive us, and he's just. He will forgive you because Jesus Christ died. Now, in 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin, right? The verse before that said, if you say you have no sin, you're lying, and the truth is not in you. See, the mark of a believer is we're always dealing with our sin. The world doesn't do that. They cover it up. They justify it. They compare it with other people. No, we just say, Lord, that's sin. And the next chapter, 1 John 2 says, little children, I write these things to you that you sin not, but remember, if you sin... You have an attorney. You have an advocate. One who speaks for you. Who? Jesus Christ. You see, God is faithful and just to forgive you because Jesus paid for that sin. He paid for it. And to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He says, here's the information. Understand, you can't control your tongue. And your tongue is only going to say what your heart is feeling. So we need our hearts right with God. How do we do that? By confession and by walking with God. Seeing God for who he really is in the word of God. See, it's easy for us to get our own God that we're comfortable with. That's what idolaters do. The psalmist said, the rich guy gets some gold and silver, makes it real pretty. So everybody goes, "Woo! what a beautiful God you have. And the poor man just gets a hunk of wood that won't totter. He says, there's my God. We do the same thing. If you stay away from the word, you don't look at the word, you can kind of make up. Well, I don't think Jesus would be like that. I don't think Jesus would have this attitude. I don't think Jesus would do this. I don't think Jesus would say that. Look at the word. Look into the word of God and see the holiness of Jesus. See that when... John was brought into the presence of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. The physical presence of a holy God knocked him to his face. When Paul encountered the risen Christ on the road to go kill Christians, he was knocked to his face too and blinded. And his first response is, "Uh, Lord, who are you? Hmm. Don't make it up in your mind. Go to the word of God. And then say, Lord, help me. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. There is a poem that was written by William Ernest Henley. It's a famous poem called Invictus. Invictus, out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. 
In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this plate of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That poem clearly reflects the attitude of those who know God's exist, who God exists, but arrogantly defy his will. I'll decide. I'll decide who I slander. I'll decide what my business is. God, you butt out. You notice he said, I don't care about the straight gate. And yet the Bible says, straight is the gate. Narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. Frank Sinatra sang a song probably based on this poem, I did it my way. And yet, we as believers say with the psalmist, I delight to do your will, O God. Write it down. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. Lord, for this passage of Scripture that's so brutal, Lord, it shows us who we are. We're always spouting out evil, slandering even our brothers. Lord, I pray that we would respond rightly even to hurts and not give way to your place and become the judge. That we would say, Lord, here I am. What do you want with my life? That we might find what your path is. Lord, that you would be our shepherd, that you would lead us so that even when we walk through the valley of shadow of death, we fear no evil because the shepherd is with us. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for loving us. Lord, help us to walk in view of your great majesty, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.